For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel, and sitting in for Neva Hill is Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs Director of External Relations, Dave Bond. Leaders of Oklahoma's pensions tell lawmakers their systems can withstand a cost-of-living adjustment for the state's retirees. This came at an interim study ordered by the legislature in lieu of passing a bill to give 4% COLAs during the past session. Muskogee Republican Representative Avery Fricks pushed for the COLA in spring and says he plans to do it again. Ryan, do you think a COLA could pass next year? I I think it needs to. I think it has to. Kudos to Representative Fricks for doing this. I mean, he said that one of the reasons that he began to champion uh, a COLA increase for uh, for state retirees is that he met a constituent of his, I think maybe out campaigning, and said that their the cost of their insurance actually grew larger uh, to one point larger than their actual retirement check. So they were putting more money out than they had coming in from their retirement. You know, when you look at, you know, 10, 11 years and uh, the time that it's been since there's been a cost of living adjustment for state retirees, think of what has happened to the power of a dollar in that time. I mean, the power of a dollar has diminished dramatically, especially whenever you look at not just overall inflation rate, but inflation rate within particular sectors, healthcare, housing, you know, those things have just gone up, transportation gone up. And so it's, it's overdue. Uh, I think it should be four. I mean, I think there'll be some question of whether it's two or four. And then there's the bigger question of how the legislature is going to do it. Are they going to pay out of the retirement funds themselves, which is what they really should do, or are they going to look for direct appropriations from state revenue? Dave. Uh, I mean, this is one of those issues, pension issues, public sector pensions that often separate the states and the major municipalities that are on sound financial footing and those who aren't. I mean, the big reason that we've had reforms over the past 10 years on Oklahoma's pension system is to get our pensions on sound financial footing so we don't get into those situations in states like California and New York where either they're having to raise taxes by large, large amounts to pay what has been promised to those retirees or they're having to put those payments to retirees in jeopardy. And so stopping the practice of paying for COLAs um, or giving COLAs without paying for them up front necessarily was one of the big reforms that has allowed our pension systems to get to a much, much better place. Even the teacher system, which is, I think, still the lowest, uh, is now over 70% as opposed to down near 50% where it was uh, when these reforms started getting put in place. A a big, you know, so, I mean, they could do an appropriation for it. They could have some arrangement where if your plan, once your plan gets funded up to a certain level, that is more sound perhaps than it is today or for those who i mean some of them a few of them are over 100 percent. maybe they can go ahead and get the cola now but the others have to wait maybe until that threshold is reached whenever that takes place and that encourages the perhaps additional reforms to those pension systems as well a few years ago the public employees uh, retirement system here in oklahoma was put on a more stable track with the teacher system uh, those are the two largest pension systems we have they they haven't been put on that more stable track yet so maybe this would provide some incentive for doing so. It was pretty surprising. To talk, they were talking about some of these pension systems are now 100% plus, yeah. uh, which is pretty impressive when you look back a few years ago uh, that they they were looking really bad, some of the worst in the nation. And, and you know, a lot of that has been bounced on the backs of the retirees. I mean, you know, if you look at one of the reasons that we haven't done that, I mean, you know, Dave talked about the fact that we stopped paying out with, we stopped paying out COLAs unless they were paid for. And so that what that did is that froze it because we weren't spending money out because we wanted to get those to a funding ratio that folks felt comfortable with. There weren't direct appropriations going to cost of living adjustments because we were in a state budget crisis. And so retirees have just sat out there for over a decade. 
Um, you know, now we are in a much better position. There's a sense that a 4% increase could affect the, the funding ratio, 2 to 3% down from, you know, 100%, you know, maybe lower than that. And when we talk on ones that are above 100%, I mean, that's important, but they're the smaller funds. And mm-hmm. so when we look at the bigger ones, teacher retirement, public employees, they aren't at 100%, but they're still at a point where they could sustain it. Governor Stitt testifies in front of the U.S. Senate. The governor is endorsing federal proposals to stop states from using the Clean Water Act to block energy projects. Dave, what's at issue here? Well, I think there's a lot of folks on the right-hand side of the political spectrum who want to protect the environment but feel that under eight years of the Obama administration with a lot of changes made to environmental rules in this country with executive power, not typically with legislative power in Congress, but typically by the executive branch, that some things need to now trend back the other direction. Scott Pruitt was obviously from Oklahoma involved in a lot of that during the first uh, couple of years of the Trump administration. And this is, you know, another step that some folks on the right want to take in that direction to, to find the balance between what, sti- what rights does a state have to perhaps limit uh, different types of energy production activity or different types of energy coming through their state, perhaps uh, disincentivizing uh, folks from producing fossil fuel energy by saying, well, you can produce it, but you can't transport it through our state. So some of those types of things, where is that that fine line? Where do, where do things come down? And then, you know, part of that conversation now is, especially with a lot of folks freak, freaked out about Russia, and sometimes rightfully so, you know, energy independence for this country is is becoming a bigger and bigger deal on people's minds. So th- I think this factors into that, too. Yeah, Ryan. Well, you know, if you look at it, so uh, what's what's at issue here is uh, Congress is uh, reconsidering, or there's some folks in Congress that want to reconsider Section 401 of the Clean Water Act. And if you what Section 401 of the Clean Water Act says is that if uh, somebody wants to construct a pipeline, you know, whether it's natural gas, oil pipeline, uh, they want to construct that, and it has to cross into that state, across over a state line into another state, that the state that it would be going into has to sign off on that. And so what we've seen is some, some states have said, we're not interested in allowing you to construct these new pipelines um, for better or worse. I mean, I think the, the interesting thing here is that um, you, you see sometimes conservatives like Governor Stitt that talk a lot about local control and states' rights. Here, if you look at Section 401, it's it's really the embodiment of states' rights. I mean, it's saying that uh, if you're a state, you're going to have uh, a lot of power, if not final power, over how we're going to allow uh, the construction of the, these pipelines and moving this material through our state. And, you know, now you've got the governor, whenever it's kind of inconsistent with the, the state of Oklahoma's uh, political interest and economic interest, going up and trying to undermine that state's right that uh, is in the Clean Water Act. You know, and then he mentions, you know, some of the things um, about Oklahoma has increased, has improved our air, our, our, uh, our water quality and some of our envir- environmental quality. I would say that a lot of that did happen under the eight years of the Obama administration. And, you know, if we have improved dramatically, it's only because we were so far below to begin with. I mean, we still have some major concerns with our water quality in the state of Oklahoma. Environmental issues in the state of Oklahoma aren't as rosy as the governor painted them before Congress. The time is running out in the stalemate between Oklahoma and the tribes over gaming compacts. Neither the governor nor tribal officials are, budge, are budging on their opinions of, over whether or not the 15-year compacts automatically renew at the end of next month. Ryan, you mentioned before this could head to the courts. Is this still a possibility, and what would that mean? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, maybe casinos here. We can't bet on this, but if, <laughs> if, 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 we, if we were betting on it, I would say that we're probably headed on a trajectory to the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the governor 
and the tribe seemed to be at an impasse over the issue of whether or not the compacts automatically renew on January 1. I think most observers and legal observers look at that, including myself, and say they do. Absolutely, they will automatically renew on January 1. Um, and I think that the governor, if, if, they, if he can't just say that, I mean, and that's really the stumbling block. If, if he would come out and say these things are set to automatically renew, that is the signal of good faith negotiation uh, that the tribes in the state of Oklahoma are looking for. Um, but I think that the governor's made several missteps here in this negotiation process, including you know, writing an op-ed that seemed to try to go around the tribes and to generate public support maybe for the governor's position and against the tribe's position. I don't think that that's going to work, and I think it's put the governor in a tough position. So you know, I think it's headed to the courts. There could be a situation where they try to uh, appeal to the federal government and the Department of Interior to maybe interfere in the compacting process, because even if they do automatically renew, there is a role for the federal government in that approval process. I think that that would be a terrible mistake and it would be awful for the state's economy. Dave? Uh, I think it's interesting that a lot of people are fixated on the January 1st deadline. Uh I've never really expected them to figure out anything by the January 1st deadline, to be totally honest. I've expected this to be drug into the legislative session. I think the tribes, and I I would understand their thinking on this, uh, feel as though if, if this issue is dragged into the legislative session, that could potentially give them some leverage that they don't currently have at this exact moment in time. Uh, so I totally expect this to be one of the top two or three most hotly debated issues uh, probably throughout the entirety of the legislative session this coming spring. If this does go to court, though, is, will this hurt uh, Oklahoma? As far as we take, get a lot of money, $2.2 billion was recently said from the, uh, just from the Cherokee Nation about what kind of impact Oklahoma has. Um, I, I think it, there could be some court stuff that gets involved. I would be a little surprised. It will be interesting to see, uh, obviously, the, the Class two gaming, the, the bingo-style games, even the more advanced electronic-style games that, typic- that technically uh, classify as bingo and so are taxed at zero. It's obvious that the, the tribal casinos will still be able to do all of that stuff uh, after January 1st. But the Class three stuff is where it does get a little hazier. Um, I mean, right now, the... The fees that the tribes are paying for monopoly rights to control the casino gaming industry in the state are really what's at stake on one side. But also there's the other stuff that, you know, in the past 15 years since these compacts were put in, really just in the past year, uh, you know, 14 months, mm-hmm. the opportunities for gaming in America have really opened up. The U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year on sports betting is a big, big deal. And you're seeing states all over the country try to position themselves, okay, what are going to be the destinations on the eastern half of the U.S. for sports betting? That is the future of gaming in America. The tribes now have at their casinos craps and roulette and a lot of that stuff, and you can't drive through Dallas without seeing big advertisements now with craps and roulette at the Windstar. I mean, that you just, I mean the Windstar is, the, my understanding, is the official casino of the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, this is a big deal. It's the world's largest casino by a lot of different metrics, and some of the others in our state are pretty close to that. The Choctaw near, near Durant is similar situation. But I, this will be a major, major issue during the legislative session. That's in 2020, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, with the sports betting, I think that it is important. But uh, I, I really, you know, looking at what the tri- their interest in sports betting in terms of what their overall revenue would be from sports betting, I think it's a lot smaller than what uh, the state's negotiating position assumes. And, you know, so if, if the the state thinks that that is a, a real carrot to offer uh, in the negotiation process, then I, I think that they're overplaying that. And I think that the tribes aren't as, I mean, even, you know, I don't think that they would turn it down if it were given to them. But in terms of uh, opening up other negotiation fronts, it's not as big of an opportunity as, as the state, I think, is presenting it to be. 
A state lawmaker wants to extend Oklahoma's ban on smoking to include bars. Weatherford Republican Representative Harold Wright plans to introduce legislation in the 2020 session. He tried to this in, he tried to pass this in the past in the spring, but his bill failed to get out of the House. Dave, do you think it could get through this year? Uh, very well could. This is uh, Speaker Wright's last session. I think he's going to have a lot of goodwill built up in the House in particular. Also Speaker Pro, pro Tem. So that pro Tem, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's folks there's folks in the restaurant industry like a Buffalo Wild Wings who have invested a lot of money in having a smoking section with an extra ventilation system and all that stuff. There's cigar bars who have opened up for the express purpose of people coming in to smoke. So I think there's certain, you know, things in the restaurant and bar industry that they're factoring into account now. But, I mean, let's be honest, this is where most places are headed these days and, and right so that smoking is a bad deal and there's a lot of things out there to discourage people from smoking so the tr- things trending this direction i don't think are really a surprise that for folks whose default position well would be well i own this establishment mm-hmm. and if my customers want to come in and smoke then who are who am i who are we to tell them no that's a really good argument another good argument too is well what about the employees in those establishments what rights do they have so there's there's a balance there, and then there's just the balance of people who have invested in that industry to help folk. Because, you know, you can go to a Buffalo Wild Wings and enjoy everything and not be exposed to that, right. or you can participate in that. And so folks who have invested in that kind of infrastructure, it does make sense to really consider that. And Ryan, do you think something like this will pass this year? Yeah, I think it's got a good shot. The uh, You know, if you've got the grandfather language in there that protects the folks mm-hmm. that have already made those investments, uh, I think that that's a big deal for the Oklahoma Restaurant Association. Um, and then if you get, you know, then, you know, the state chamber, I think will take, uh, the restaurants lead on this. I mean, that's, uh, so the chambers had some, uh, consternation with, uh, with these smoking bans in the past and, you know, what it means for private property rights, uh, of their, of their membership. But I really think that if the restaurant association can, uh, be appeased with some sort of a grandfathering clause, then they're okay with that new restaurants, new bars that are opening. You know, rarely do you see uh, any sort of a smoking section or smoking opportunity. I mean, I forget about it. I, uh, earlier this year, I, or earlier this football season, my, my dad uh, was in Oklahoma City and he invited me. So let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch a football games. So I drove over to Buffalo Wild Wings and you know started walking. I was like, I couldn't find him because my dad smokes. And I, I kept going and I walked into this room and it was like I walked back in time uh, <laughs> and was like, oh my gosh, it was just you know cutting through uh, a blanket of smoke. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, my, my allergies just destroyed me. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, my dad, that's his choice to be there. It's Buffalo Wild Wings choice to build that investment out. But a lot of the folks that work at Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, the employees that work there, you know, I mean, they just need a job. And you um, and when you can think about patrons of restaurants, uh, but really, you know, it's the employees that I'm most concerned about there and, you know, putting them in a situation where they have to choose between going to work in a situation where they deal with a ton of secondhand smoke. I mean, I was in there for just like a couple of hours, yeah. but if you're working there and that's how you're paying your bills, you really shouldn't have to choose between exposing yourself to that kind of uh, harm uh, and, and just having a job. I remember when I went to a Missouri restaurant recently and they asked me for smoking or non-smoking and I went, what? I didn't even think about is that. that still you know, a thing? It, it, well, yeah. apparently it is. But I, I remember. I, you know, I have this, to explain the airplane joke. You know, I watch airplane with my son, and they ask, you know, the, the ticket smoking on. or non-smoking. He gives him the smoking ticket, and my son just does it. Just goes right over him. It's like a phone book joke. Right. I remember when when the restaurant bill was passed, with the first restaurants non-smoking allowing for a separate. There was so much pushback, but now it just seems, Dave, it just seems kind of normal that this is just how it's done nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, it, it's just that 
fine line of, you know, it's the, the property mm-hmm. owner, the, the restaurant owner, the bar owner, and the, the customers who want to be there. Um, you know, it, are there outside options? I mean, there's lots of different ways you can do it where everybody's rights are protected. But, you know, society as a whole is, is trending away from smoking, and it just kind of is what it is. That's why cigarette companies are investing so much in vaping yeah. stuff so, or diversifying into alcohol and other things. I mean, that, it's just where things are going. Another bill, possibly going to lawmakers next year, provides a tax credit for people who undergo gun safety classes. Broken Arrow Republican Senator Nathan Dom says he's introducing the measure in response to the permitless carry law, which no longer requires a license or training to get a gun. Ryan, what do you think of this bill? This is weak sauce. I mean, yeah, if, if you know, this is, I think, uh, I think he's, uh, Senator Dom's trying to make this out as a, a way to promote gun safety. Really what it is, is it's a giveaway to his constituency, which are largely Second Amendment NRA members gun owners, um, and not just gun owners, but, um, you know, uh, gun right enthusiasts, you know, like these folks, like these second amendment auditors that are walking around the state right now with their AR 15s, testing the new permitless carry law. Um, you know, so I, I think that if, if he really wanted to do something to increase, uh, gun safety, even in a regime that allows for, uh, permitless carry, it's not constitutional carry, because if you believe it's constitutional carry, you don't need a state law to be able to do it because it's in the constitution. But permitless carry, if we want to do that, then there should be insurance. You know, we have insurance requirements for folks. Uh, and then if you want to provide a tax incentive for people to go get, you know, better insurance policies. But if you think about it, we have to have liability insurance just to drive our cars. There ought to be some sort of liability insurance out there if you're going to own a firearm. There should be some cost that's commensurate with the risk that you're creating for society. And this really doesn't uh, t- uh, taper down on that risk that uh, the guns and incre- increased amount of guns that are in circulation as a result of laws that he supported this just really just doesn't address that risk at all. Dave? I think it's a really interesting bill. I mean, there's a lot of folks who try to do a lot of different things to use the tax code to incentivize certain behavior. Uh, one of the big critiques of the new gun law is that, well, folks won't have to have firearm safety training anymore. They won't, they won't have to get permits and be registered and, and do all those things anymore. It, I mean, it is a way to potentially incentivize some people to still do those things, particularly the firearm safety training thing. When you add all those things up, those all the different steps along the way, they all cost something that can add up to several hundred dollars. That doesn't break the bank necessarily for some people, but for others, it might be a hindrance. Uh, I would anticipate folks, if this becomes law, uh, most likely to utilize it for the firearm safety training piece. Uh, you know, it very well could be that not many folks use it for the permit registration piece. But for the firearm safety training, I mean, you talk to a lot of people who maybe aren't gun enthusiasts, but want to own a gun, want to know how to use a gun, that sort of thing. They, you know, they often do want that sort of training. So that off, that piece often still appeals to them. I could see that piece of this getting used quite a bit. So it might incentivize more people to do that as well. It, w- it would make it more attractive. Yeah. You know, let's be honest, in an election year, in a Republican primary, this is going to be an attractive thing for a lot of uh, members of his caucus to have on their resumes. I, I don't I don't think this is really a turnoff bill for a lot of his colleagues. It's not expanding uh, gun rights in any particular way that cause might cause anybody heartburn. I, I'd be surprised if it has too much trouble. And there's, you know, there's been a kind of a climate of dis, uh, disfavor towards tax incentives, regardless of the subject matter underlying the tax incentive um, for, you know, the last several years now as the state's trying to figure it out, like, how is it that we're uh, losing revenue uh, through tax incentives and whether that's business credits or, or something like this. Um, to, so, I mean, that, you know, that could be kind of a blanket way for Senate leadership to not delve into the gun, gun issue and just say, 
we're not going to hear any sort of new tax incentive program right now because it cuts into revenue at a time when we can't cut into revenue. Um, but if, if they do, uh, I can see, you know, Dave, whenever you talk about walking into the election cycle, if Republicans are facing criticism uh, from the majority of Oklahomans, because it's only a small number of Oklahomans that really are uh, soundly in favor of permitless carry. I mean, if we had that on the ballot to repeal it, I think it would be repealed. Um, but if you are trying to uh, mitigate the, 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 the attacks that you're making Oklahoma less safe as a result of permitless carry, you can have this out as a, a way to say, well, I'm actually trying to incentivize mm-hmm. safety courses and training. I don't know how much, you know, water uh, that carries with voters, but <laughs> I mean, it's something to say. And, and you know, generally politicians, if, if you give them something to say, they'll just say it over and over again. And Ryan and Dave's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management.